We are continuing our series that we're calling This is Love. This week, going to talk about loving your enemy. So it's a very profound concept. The main points of this whole series is that love is foundational and indispensable for Christianity. We must be people of love if we are followers of Jesus. We have to, all the law and the prophets hang on that. Love is foundational and indispensable. The second thing is that something's going to be missing and broken without love. If you don't understand the love of God for you, if you don't know how to return that love to him, if you don't know how to love others, it's, it's not going to work. You're not going to understand and be able to put Christianity into practice. It's going to be broken. So third point, we need to seek to be made complete, mature in love. If we seek that, it's a process. We'll talk about that more in the sermon today. But if we seek to grow and be made complete, mature in love, then we will get to the place where we can follow the ways of God more effectively. Last week, we talked about loving one another. That is loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were in John chapter 13, 34 and 35 is the primary verses for that. And just fantastic stuff. Jesus says to his followers, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one one another. So this is an incredible command that Jesus gives that we're to love one another. That's our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a command, but there's also a result. The result is that by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So I'm convinced that the single most powerful tool we have for evangelism is to love each other. If we can do that as believers, then we will be a group worth inviting other people to, worth joining together with. But if we're full of strife and anger and hate, it's just, who wants to be part of that? So we've got to love one another. It's the ways of God. It's the command of the Lord. And so we want to be able to do that. So you can get caught up by going to the sermon archives and listening to that sermon. If you weren't there this week, love your enemies. Part five, love your enemies. So love your enemies. All right. This is an important teaching in the Bible. It's a teaching of Christ. We are to love our enemies. Again, this is a very counterintuitive teaching. Why would you love your enemies? Your enemies are mean and obnoxious and terrible, and they're doing all these things wrong. They're hurting you, people that you love. Definitely not natural to love your enemies. And yet the teaching is there. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 43, and we see this teaching. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. 
So we're clearly called to love our enemies. And Jesus acknowledges that this is not something that normal people do. This is only something that people who have been changed by the power of God to live a different way are going to do. But we are called out to be separate, to do things different than the world. So we're called to love our enemies. Let's look at the account in Luke chapter 6, going through the same thing. This is also an account of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you can read in maybe, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, but it probably went on for hours. So not everything is recorded exactly right. So when you have different accounts, you can see more of what was taught. So let's go to Luke chapter six, starting in verse 27. And it's the same basic idea. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Amazing, amazing teachings of Christ. Now, I believe when Jesus said something that he meant it, when he teaches us to live a particular way that's contrary to what we would expect, that he meant it. This isn't some fluffy teaching that we're supposed to ignore and just say, oh yeah, well, that's a neat idea. Nobody's going to actually do that. And so we ignore it. No, Jesus meant for us to actually do this. This is something he's teaching his followers to do. So we need to take this seriously. We need to deal with this. So I want to look at some points from these verses and then just kind of go through the process, because I've tried to do this, you know, I, I think uh, there's things that you learn when you try to put these things into practice. What are some points from just these verses here in Matthew and Luke? There's just a few I want to cover real quick before we get into those other things. The first one is that the child of God loves and prays for their enemies. That's what is implied in Matthew 5, 45. That's what we see here in Luke chapter six, that then, you, you know, you will be children of the most high if you love your enemies. This is something that's expected of the child of God. The child of God loves their enemies. So this is very important for us to grab hold of this because that's what this teaches. You know, what credit is it to you from Luke chapter six? If you just do the things that come naturally, you've got to override your natural inclinations and live the ways of God in order to receive credit, in order to get the reward. So we don't want to miss our reward. If you hate your enemies, you've received your reward in full. You got to hate your enemies but you didn't live the ways of God. So you got to be willing to change your heart to fit what the scriptures say. The scriptures have authority to teach us how to live. And so we need to 
yield to that authority, then we can trust that we get our reward. And of course, the third point I just want to make quickly is that we are called to be different. We're not supposed to be the same. We're not supposed to be people who, you know, acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross and then just keep living the same life as everybody else. We're called to be different. We're called to live the ways of God. And one of the clear ways of God is to love your enemies. And it's difficult, it's hard, but we need to work to get there. We need to work hard. And I think it makes sense that we are to love our enemies. John 13, 34 and 35, we read already, which is that Jesus says that he gave us a new command that as he has loved us, so we are to love one another. How has Jesus loved us? Well, from Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if we are to live out the ways of God and we're to love one another, how he has loved us, so many people who are currently our enemies are just pre-Christians. You know, they're going to come to Christ. And so we have to love them because Jesus loved us while we were pre-Christians. You know, I don't know how long you were a pre-Christian, but I was a pre-Christian long enough to need some good forgiveness, to need to be brought into the family of God from the outside. I was in a position to be loved as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And people loved me. People reached out to me. People cared about me even when I was like that. And so I see that as just a natural part of following Christ. And let me ask this question. What greater representation of Christ can we live out beyond loving our enemies? That is what Jesus did on the cross. He lived out the love for those who are separated from God, who are enemies of the ways of God. He showed profound love for each one who was an enemy of God by going to the cross. And so we can live out the ways of God, I think in the most profound way by loving our enemies. So this is very important, very important. And I don't think there's another way that we can distinguish ourselves from everyone else than by loving our enemies. What a counterintuitive, countercultural, amazing thing it would be if every Christian was typified by the love they have for their enemies. Oh man, what would this world be like? (laughs) What would this world be like? I just get excited about the potential. I believe there's incredible potential with this. I also want to read John 8, 31 and 32. We did a sermon series on this. This is a a very iconic teaching of Christ as well. A uh, couple of verses that have been brought out in a lot of different ways and into the culture itself. And people don't know they're quoting Jesus with this. But let me look at John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus says this to the Jews who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you hold to my teachings, meaning if you actually do what I say, not know what I say and do something else, but if you actually do what I say, then you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the truth isn't theoretical. The truth is based on living out the teachings of Christ. The truth is based on action and we learn by example. So I mentioned earlier that I have endeavored to try to put into practice, love your enemies. So what are some lessons learned? What are some truths that I've been able to see by trying to live the ways of God? I've got five things. We're going to cover these. What do we learn when we try 
who love our enemies. First thing, it's a battle, not a simple choice. I've heard people say love is a choice. Love involves choice, but love isn't just a choice. You can choose and try and realize that you haven't gotten there yet. Let's talk about running a marathon. Is running a marathon a choice? Well, yes, in one sense, but you can't just be sitting on the couch and say, I think I'll run a marathon this afternoon. That's not how that works. You then would have to train. You then would have to do all these things to get to the place where you can actually run the marathon. And I think that's how it is with loving your enemies. We can say, yes, I'm going to love my enemies. But then there's a process of spiritual growth and maturing that we have to go through in order to get to that place. Matthew 5, 48, that we read earlier, Jesus says that we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And that word perfect means mature and complete. It's the exact same word in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. That word is twice in verse 4. So let me read through James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The difficulties we go through in life, if we add faith to those difficulties, if we trust God in the midst of those things, then he will use those things to grow us up, get us stronger, bring us to a place of being mature and complete, not lacking anything. What a wonderful thing to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Both of those words, mature and complete, are the same word, perfect, in Matthew 5, 48. It's the same word, mature and complete. Translated in two different ways here in the NIV as mature and complete. So it isn't just that we're like, okay, love my enemies. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. You got it. You're not taking it seriously. If that's the way that you approach this, if you're actually trying to love your enemies, to have a love like Christ has for people, then you know, it's a process. It is a difficult, powerful process strong process. It's about maturing and rising above in the face of injustice, in the face of trials of many kinds. It's about rising up into that mature and complete place. And it takes time. It takes discipline. It takes the Holy Spirit moving in your heart. For me, years and years ago, I had a situation where I had some enemies and I did not like them. And I had some bitterness and unforgiveness towards them because of some things that they had done. And I was noticing that it was negatively affecting my relationship with God. And I was trying to forgive. I was trying to get over it. And then, you know, uh, in the middle of the night, you're dreaming about choking them. And you're like, oh, guess I <laughs> don't love my enemies yet. I haven't gotten to the place of forgiveness. You know, I, you, you try, but you're not there yet. And I'd been working on this for about a year. So these things can take time, but I was endeavoring to forgive. I was endeavoring to love my enemies for a year and it wasn't working. And I was driving through Bemidji, uh, love the city of Bemidji. And I was sitting at the stoplight by Paul and babe. And all of a sudden the Holy spirit just met me right there in my car at a red light and said to me, you know, I didn't hear an audible voice, but just in my heart, it was a, a strong, strong voice that said, unforgiveness is opposition to the cross. And I just thought, oh my goodness, if I'm harboring unforgiveness, if I'm in that place in my heart, and that means I'm opposing the cross, well, no wonder I'm fading in my relationship with God. I can't be opposing the cross and grow in my relationship with God. 
That's not going to happen. So that was enough to scare me into forgiveness and loving those people. Oh, yeah, it's messed up. Whatever, God, you take care of that part. I'm just going to let it go. And at that moment, I was able to let it go. And so that was both the intervention of the Holy Spirit in my heart and my willingness to receive that. So it takes discipline. It takes time. It takes the intervention of the Holy Spirit to be able to to grow up, be made mature and complete. Very important. So lesson number one is a battle, not a simple choice. Lesson two, it can be complicated. Loving your enemies can be complicated. Let's talk about cheeks and tables. There's different things that Jesus turned. He turned the other cheek and he turned over the tables of the money changers. Two very, very different ideas. So in Luke chapter six, we already talked about Jesus telling us to turn the other cheek. And of course, at the cross, Jesus turned the other cheek. Very, very uh, obvious examples of him not escalating the situation, but receiving the insult, receiving the damage and letting it go at that point. But also, let me read John 2, 13 through 16. We see a very, very different strategy. It was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So you might describe that as civil disobedience. I mean, he goes to the temple. He's turning over the money changers table, scattering the coins. He's driving the animals away. He's yelling at people like, how is that turning the other cheek? How is that loving your enemy? What, what's going on here? You know, we see that is a very different thing. So how do we understand that? Well, it can be complicated. Loving your enemy can be complicated. And here's the deal. We see that the two main strategies Turning the cheek and turning the table. What's the idea with this? I think it's fairly clear in my mind that we need to do what it takes to stop the cycle of evil. Most of the time, it's turn the other cheek. When somebody says something wrong, when somebody says something insulting, we just absorb it. Don't let it bother us, but don't then come back with the next insult at the next level. We just receive it. We just absorb it. We be the bigger person and turn the other cheek. But sometimes you've got to take a stand and you've got to intervene. And that's what Jesus was doing in John chapter two, where he's flipping over the money changers tables, where he's making a whip and driving animals out. He is clearly not turning the other cheek in that situation. He is intervening to stop the cycle of evil. So whatever it takes to stop the cycle of evil is what we need to do. And that's how it gets complicated. There are people who have tried to love their enemies and then they've just become a victim of their enemy's cruelty and nobody's benefited. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. And he's not telling you to become an enabler. He's not telling you to subject yourself to being a victim. Turning the other cheek is about being the bigger person in the situation so that it doesn't escalate. And then flipping over the money changers tables is about intervening in situations where there needs to be an intervention. So we need to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves so that we can understand which one we need to do. We need to understand, should I flip over the money changers tables or should I turn the other cheek? And I think in today's society in the United States, in Minnesota right now, we need to be doing both. 
All right. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So third idea, third thing we learn when we try to put this into practice is that the primary beneficiary of loving your enemies is you. You are the primary beneficiary if you get to the place where you love your enemies. It's a fantastic, fantastic truth. You know, the kingdom of God, of course, advances profoundly when God's people can love their enemies, but we've got to be doing that on a vast majority kind of a scale. At this stage, as we need to continue to learn along these lines, the primary beneficiary of you loving your enemies is you. You're the one who gets set free, not them. You're the one who is brought out of a place of darkness, brought out of a place of strife and hurt and unforgiveness and brokenness. You're the one who is set free and healed when you love your enemy. I've told this story a bunch of times. I'll tell it again. The way I see sin is like an old whaling ship with the harpoon and the rope that connects the whaling ship to the whale. Sin is like that harpoon that hits the whale. And what happens is there's a bond created between the enemy and the person who is injured. They're connected. That's why at two in the morning, you wake up thinking about that person who has wronged you so badly. There's a connection that is built between you. Now that connection is not helpful. Just like the connection between the whaling ship and the whale is not helpful for the whale. So the whale has to, to get free, would have to break that rope. And for us, forgiveness breaks that connection. It breaks that rope so that we're not continuing to hate that person. We're not continuing to be brought further into bitterness and darkness, but instead we are able to then be free and now start to heal. The wound can heal, but while it's attached to the rope, it's just going to keep moving around, causing all kinds of problems. It's going to be bad. The primary beneficiary of you loving your enemies is you. And we need to let God deal with the vengeance part. We do the forgiveness part. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17, talks about this very straightforward. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So we are not to take revenge. We leave that to God. Our job is to forgive. So the primary beneficiary of you loving your enemies is you, not your enemy. Or this will help fix the broken scoreboard in people's hearts. If you love your enemies, it will help fix the broken scoreboard. Now, what I'm talking about here is the wrongs that you count that you have committed versus the wrongs that you count that other people have committed. And what happens is that we have a tendency to overlook the wrongs that we've committed. And yet we also at the same time will augment, increase, count all kinds of things that other people have committed. And so we get a weird scoreboard. This happens in marriage all the time. So, you know, it happens in close relationships like that, where I think I'm doing the right thing, but hey, my wife is doing things wrong. Now she owes me. Well, usually the scoreboard is wrong. My wife and I had all kinds of problems with this early on because we would guess 
different things. We guess wrong and our scoreboards in our heads were all messed up. And what can happen so easily is we can think the world is against us. Everything is terrible. Everybody hates me. There's nothing I can do to fix this. It's just terrible. And when you get to the place of instead of being paranoid, instead of hating everybody, when you get to the place of loving your enemies, then it fixes that scoreboard in your mind. You start to get to the place of love like it describes in 1 Corinthians 13 that keeps no record of wrongs, that isn't all fixated on the scoreboard and saying, oh yeah, I've, I've been uh, treated wrong. I've, been, I've received injustice. I've been pushed down. You know, instead of talking about the scoreboard, you start to look at the world in a different way. When we love our enemies, we start to feel less oppressed. We start to feel less pushed down. We start to feel less hurt. And it fixes that scoreboard. And the problem with the scoreboard is that it will make itself true. If I think I've been wronged, then I'll get wronged. Let me give you an example. If someone feels like they're always left out, nobody's my friend, everybody hates me, they always leave me out. And they keep talking about that. They keep thinking that. When they look at people, they think, you're going to leave me out, aren't you? And Then what's going to happen to that person? <laughs> well, they're going to get left out because they're obnoxious to be around. They're going to lift, get left out because they're thinking the wrong types of thoughts. And so their skewed scoreboard is going to actually make it come to pass. And you don't want to be in that position where when you think you're always wronged, that then that causes you to be wronged. But the person who's not afraid of being left out enters a new room is like, hey, a bunch of friends I haven't met yet. Awesome. And then guess what? They get included. They get brought in. They get to be friends with everybody. But the one who is feeling like they're going to be left out, just gets left out. When you get to the place where you love your enemies, where you can love people, whoever they are, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbors, even your enemies, then the scoreboard gets all changed and you're able to access good things like being included without a misperception that will then push you out. So when we love our enemies, it helps fix the broken scoreboard. And then Idea number five, love your enemies, is this. We need to have great respect for what Jesus did. We need to have profound respect for what Jesus did. Not only did he teach us to love our enemies, but he did it. He lived it out. He went to the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross for a broken world that hated him enough to murder him, to torture him to death. He could have stayed in heaven. They could have just, you know, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they could have just blown up this world and started over. But they didn't. Jesus came to this earth. He condescended, as they say in theological circles, from almighty to a baby in a manger, to a man who could be ridiculed and mocked falsely accused, tried, found guilty, tortured to death for the benefit of those he created. We need to have profound respect for what Jesus did. When we try to live out, love your enemies, and we see the difficulties and the things that are confusing and the, the heart conflicts and all of those things, we need to have profound respect for what Jesus did because he lived it out. So five things again. In recap, it's a battle. It's not a simple choice. It can be complicated. Sometimes you turn the other cheek. Sometimes you turn over the money changers tables. Primary beneficiary of you loving your enemies is you. It helps fix your broken scoreboard in your head. And we need to have profound for respect for what Jesus did on the cross. 
profound respect for what Jesus did on the cross. Can you see the potential if we actually did this? What if everyone who considered themselves to be a Christian loved their enemies? Can you see the potential? What would happen? It'd be great. It'd be amazing. It'd be wonderful. You know, for you, there'd be freedom and healing. For society, there'd be understanding and unity. For your enemies, there could be repentance and forgiveness. So many wonderful things could happen. So how are the children of God? How are the people of God doing with love your enemies? Are we winning that battle or is there room for improvement? I would say we're not doing real well. Not so good. In fact, there are even Christians. There are Christian leaders who use hate as a way to puff themselves up, to bolster themselves as a person, to try to gain support for their ministries. They use hate as a tool. And that's a disaster. I'm talking about hating people as a tool, dividing people as a tool. Don't be like that. Don't be like that as an individual. Don't be like that as a leader. If you're a Christian leader and you're using hate, you know, of the government or different groups or people that disagree with you or whatever, if you're using that to build cohesion in your group, you stop it. That's not going to help. We are people of the cross. We are people of love. We need to follow the truths of God. Now, stick with the truth of God, the truth and love. So we need to make some progress. Let's endeavor to rise up and actually live out the teachings of Christ regarding loving our enemies. Let's endeavor to do that. I want to finish our time by reading Titus 3, 1 through 11. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So we see here a progression of Paul encouraging Titus to tell people to live right, do right. And comparing that to the past and the phrase that really caught my eye years ago in there is being hated and hating one another. Just living in that life of hate. You're just in a pool of hate. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's just everywhere. Being hated and hating one another. But instead, God intervenes. His kindness and his love, the rebirth and the washing by the spirit bring us into a new way. But we don't want to fall back. We don't want to go into the place in the last couple of verses we're talking about, we need to be devoted to what is good, not devoted to uh, divisions and arguments and stuff that's unprofitable and unhelpful. So as we pray, if you're at the place where you want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, you don't want to be part of being hated and hating one another and trying to sort out who's the more evil. 
But if you want to be washed and clean from that, brought into a new way of seeing the world, seeing yourself and understanding God, then now's the time to pray. Now's the time to ask God to intervene in your life. If you're someone who's been walking with Christ for a long time and you've just laughed at the idea of loving your enemies, you've never taken it seriously. Today's the day you need to take it seriously. Today is the day that we in America, we in the church need to do this. If we don't do this, what's going to come? Take seriously the teachings of Christ to love your enemy. If you've got a prayer need, I encourage you to send it in prayer at goodhope.ag. You know, they'll pray for you, whatever it is. If you are starting a relationship with Jesus, you need somebody to pray with you just to encourage you, send in a, a prayer request on email. And if you are at the place where you want to make a decision for Christ and you think you need some help and you're not sure exactly what to do, shoot me an email, Pastor Mike at goodhope.ag. I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a testimony of things God's doing in your life, or you're in that place where you just need somebody to come alongside you and help you turn your life to Christ, email me, Pastor Mike at goodhope.ag. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Lord, we know your teachings are amazing. They're not, they're not the ways that come natural to us. But Lord, they are your ways. They are higher than our ways. And your ways are to love those who don't deserve it. Your ways are to love those who have hurt you and you call us to be your children, to love those who don't deserve it, to love those who have hurt us, to represent your heart in this world. So father, help us to fight this fight. Help us to endeavor to do this and to acknowledge when it's not working and to continue to work through it, seeking you for help and guidance and the power of your spirit, the renewing of the mind. Lord, help us with this. And Lord, help us to encourage each other through it. And Father, for those who right now need to say yes to you, I pray that, that they would just cry out to you and say, Lord, I need forgiveness and I need a new life. And when they do that, I know, Lord, you will answer them right where they're at. So Lord, we give you praise. We ask you to intervene in our world, to bring your light, your goodness, your kindness, and your love to Minnesota, to the United States, to the whole world. Lord, bless us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.